0: Like to take up your Bibles. We're in Revelation and we're having two readings. We're starting in chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown." Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Second reading is in chapter 3, just over the page, starting at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name.
1: Good evening. Do keep that reading open. My name is Phil. I'm the assistant minister here, and it's lovely to be back in Revelation again this week. As I say, uh, if you keep the reading open in Revelation, and you'll find there's an outline on the back of the sheet, which will help you know um, where we're going, and most importantly, when we're almost finished. Um, let's pray. Father God, the Lord Jesus tells us what to pray at this point. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, please would you give us uh, not just physically open ears, but spiritually open ears. A willingness to listen to you, to change, to be challenged. A willingness to believe your promises that we might honour the Lord Jesus Christ and live hopeful, faithful lives. Amen. Amen. What do you think a church looks like if Jesus is pleased with it? How can you tell if Jesus is pleased with a church, with our church? What about with an individual? What do you think life looks like for somebody who Jesus loves and really approves of? What would you expect your life to be like if Jesus looked at you and thought, You are really living well. Yep, you're saved by grace, but having been saved by grace, my goodness, you're honoring me in the way you live, and I love the way you're living. What do you think would end up happening in your life? Success? Comfort? Enjoyment? There are seven letters, as we've seen, for They're representing the the churches of the whole world. Seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor representing all churches. And they've got a similar structure. Uh, We saw that last week. Uh, Jesus addresses the angel of the church and he declares something about himself from the vision in chapter one that this church particularly needs to hear. Then he commends something the church is doing well. Then he points out something the church needs to change, to repent of. And then he points to the end of Revelation and promises the church something glorious from the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And finally, he calls on all the churches to pay attention to what he said. But two churches break the mold in that. There are two churches that receive no criticism whatsoever from Jesus, only praise. And as it happens, they are not the ones with the easiest, most comfortable lives. They're not the ones whose businesses are flourishing and whose careers are really taking off. They're not the ones who are uh, posting on social media, hashtag blessed, with pictures of them on lovely holidays with their shiny, happy families and friends, and walking into the dream house they've just bought. Actually, they're the ones suffering hardship and difficulty and discomforts. They're the ones who are being dragged through the court, and worse still, being found unjustly guilty. They're the ones whose businesses have closed because people won't deal with Christians. They're the ones who've lost their homes because their businesses have closed. The church in Smyrna, the first of these two churches, is about to suffer severe persecution. Jesus says, look, some of you are going to be killed. Imagine Jesus saying that to us. Some of you here are going to be killed this week for being Christians. Church in Philadelphia has come through brutal persecution, but they haven't given up. And Jesus looks at these churches and says, these, these, look, everybody else, these are the churches I love. These are the people I approve of. These are the ones who are one day gonna hear from me, well done, good and faithful servant. And as we look at these two churches, we're gonna learn what does a church look like that Jesus approves of? What does my life look like if Jesus approves of me? And I think, I think we'll find it a profound challenge. I know I have this week. Because we are part of a generation. Yes, I know, I'm, we're, we're close enough. We're, but all of us here are part of a generation in the West that prizes comfort and physical safety above almost anything. It is an idol for us. We expect, we demand that we be physically safe, and we just imagine that life ought to deliver comfort and ease. Comfort is our idol. So what do we do if God calls us to suffer? To be persecuted for his sake? Now the truth is, I guess, look, you're in church. Part of the reason you're here is you want to please God or you want to find out about God. You're, you're interested in God. You're here because you want to please him. But does there come a point for each one of us where we say, yeah, I want to please God, but not if it costs that much. At that point, I tap out. Well, let's learn from two churches for whom nothing is too much to pay firstly those who are slain will reign verses 1 to 8 now Smyrna is just up the coast from Ephesus in Asia Minor in Turkey and it's a proudly Roman city with a whole heap of temples to the Roman emperors and it's one of the the wealthiest cities in Asia Minor because of the, the way the port is and they have great trade routes so much for Smyrna the city what about the church verses 9 to 10 To the angel of the church in Smyrna write: these are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Okay, what two words would you use to describe this church? We, when we re the website a little while ago, we we're thinking through what words do we use to describe? What do we want to put on the homepage? What, what are the trigger words that actually summarize what we're like as a congregation? They weren't these words, afflicted and poor. That's what Jesus says, look, when I look down at you, I think this is what the world sees affliction and poverty. That's the description of you afflicted and poor. The reason for that affliction and poverty emerges in the second half of the verse uh, the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, let me say look, anti Semitism is a genuine problem today. It's not a theoretical thing or a historical thing. And, to our utter shame the church has at times not just gone along with it but led the way in it and that's an utter disgrace but that's not what is happening here that's not what's happening here most of the early Christians were Jews Jesus was a Jew Paul was a Jew and in fact most of the church in Smyrna would have been Jewish which is why there's friction between them and the other Jews and being kept out of the synagogue was an issue the comment about persecuting them, um, them are not real Jews, but a synagogue of Satan, is, it sounds just inflammatory hate speech. But don't forget, when, when Peter told Jesus, no, 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 you don't need to go to the cross and die, just reign as a king, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And that's what John's picking up on. He's reminding us that actually in the heavenly realms, there is a great conflict, a great eternal conflict between the devil and the lord jesus and if you are opposing jesus then you are on the side of the devil that's what his point is you're doing satan's work and you're following satan's ways that's what he means now they faced slander we're told in verse nine we know that the early christians suffered all sorts of slander the roman governor and um and he was just a bit of a authority kisser shall we say called Pliny um, is always writing um, sycophantic letters to emperors and governors and in one of them he says what do I do with these Christians everybody knows they're appalling I mean they're into incest and cannibalism as everybody knows what but the reason was they were accused of incest and cannibalism because they were incest because they're always talking about loving the brothers and sisters and cannibalism because people heard that the Lord's Supper they eat the body and blood of Jesus And so there was all sorts of slander going on about them. But Jesus is in control, so surely when Jesus' people are falsely accused, Jesus will protect them, won't he? Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Oh. The persecution is going to last 10 days. I think that refers back to Daniel, which is a very important Old Testament book that gets picked up lots in Revelation. And in Daniel 1, a number of times we're told for 10 days they were tested, Daniel and his friends, by the pagan authorities. So it's, I think it's a symbolic number saying you will be tested for a particular set of time rather than it must be 10 literal days. It assures them that there'll be an end to their suffering and it assures them that God is in control. He knows how long it will last. God's not saying, look, you're gonna suffer terribly and, well, I have no idea how long it's gonna last. I mean, it's not like I'm in control of Satan. I mean, he does what he wants. I mean, what what can I do? No, God says, no, 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 you're gonna suffer. Some of you will be killed. It'll last for 10 days. God says, I'm in control I know when it'll start, I know when it'll end, and I know how severe it'll be. God is in control. So, how should the church respond? Well, there are two very simple commands in verse 10, and they come at either end of the last sentence in verse verse 10. Um, We're told, do not be afraid at the beginning of verse 10, and then the beginning of the next sentence, be faithful individual church members do not know as they read this letter in smyrna i mean can you imagine the sunday when this is read in your church and the individual members are looking around and go oh which one of us they don't know will 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 i be the one who's thrown in prison will i be the one who's killed or will i be the one who actually gets away this time and nothing happens they don't know that's in god's hands all they know is they must be faithful and not be afraid and the pairing of those two words is, is really helpful, fear, uh, faithful and not afraid. Because the point is, staying faithful is what it looks like to obey the command to not be afraid. It doesn't mean that when you're dragged into an arena with wild animals that you should feel a zen-like sense of calm and not be absolutely terrified. It means that in spite of the terror, you remain faithful. Faithful that fear doesn't rule your behavior. That's what this pairing means. Be faithful, do not fear. In other words, no matter what happens, don't let fear rule you. Let your faith in Christ be what determines how you behave. Now, how on earth do ordinary people like you and me find the courage to do that? These are ordinary Christians. To stay faithful when mocked for being a religious freak. To stay faithful when condemned for being a Christian fundamentalist, to stay faithful when it costs you socially, financially with your career, to stay faithful right up to the point of it costing you your life. Well, the key, of course, is what Jesus says at the start and what Jesus says at the end. It's built on that glorious vision we had of Jesus in chapter one, one who is worthy of all worship and one who is mighty and holds his people. And he reminds them of that, as he, as he quotes something that he said in chapter one. In, in 117 to18, Jesus described himself as the one who was faithful even to the point of death. And he picks that up in, in verse eight. "These are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came alive again. Jesus is the one who knows what it is to be faithful even to the point of death, the one who was the first and the last. He's made the journey himself through persecution down into the grave and now up into glory. And his life testifies that if we're faithful to him, then the martyr's grave is not the end of the story. The victor's crown awaits all those who trust in him. And throughout Revelation, Jesus is called the lamb. It's his most common title in Revelation. It tells us this subversive kingdom of God God, that appears so weak in the world, ruled by a lamb who's been slain, and yet he is the one who reigns on the throne in heaven. He is the one who is almighty. The one who was despised is the one before whom every knee will bow. The one who was killed is the one who is the Lord of eternal life. The one who suffered and died reigns forever. So keep looking to Jesus Keep looking to Jesus, and if you have to walk the path through suffering and persecution, he will keep you. So for the church at Smyrna, as they prepare to face the most severe of trials, here is assurance that suffering and death are not tragedy and failure. Rather, they're evidence that you're a faithful follower of Jesus, who himself suffered and died. In the world's eyes, this church is afflicted and poor, But Jesus says, verse nine, yet you are rich. You have nothing in the world, but in heaven, for eternity, you have everything. And all humans must go through the first death. But those who trust in Jesus, verse 11, they will not be hurt at all by the second death. They will be victorious. We don't know exactly what happened to this church after this letter was written. We don't know how long before the persecution came we do know that in about 156 AD the churches in Smyrna were um, were led by a guy called Polycarp his name means lots of fruit he was the bishop of Smyrna and when he was threatened with being thrown to the wild animals or burned alive because he refused to worship the emperor he famously stood up and said how can I blaspheme my king and savior who I've served 86 years You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment. He was more afraid of the second death than the first death. And so he was faithful, even to the point of death. Those who are slain will reign. That's the great promise of the gospel. Now, secondly, Philadelphia, those who hold on will never be let go. Now, Philadelphia is a church over in chapter three that has already been through the fire. And this letter is full of powerful imagery to encourage people who are just crushed and brutalized. You've got four things, a key, a door, a pillar, and a tattoo. That's what we're looking for, a key, a door, a pillar, and a tattoo. Um, But we'll look at it the same way. We'll look at what's happening to the church, the middle bit of the letter first, and then we'll look at what Jesus says at the beginning and at the end to encourage them. So verse 7, "'To the angel in the church at Philadelphia,' Write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan and claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. They've got very little strength apparently, but in spite of that, they've refused to deny Jesus. It's wonderfully encouragement for those of us who don't feel particularly strong. Here is a church that's weak, and yet they've been faithful. Faithful. Now Acts 16 gives us some insight into what might have been going on in Philippi because Acts 16 records what happened when the gospel first was preached at Philippi by Paul and Silas. And it didn't go particularly well in one sense. A number of people became Christians but then it all kicked off and the authorities had them publicly flayed, flogged in public, beaten and then locked in jail. And now we're told the church is suffering. I guess it's probably something similar falsely accused by those who claim to be God's people but are not, verse nine, ill-treated but faithfully enduring through it all, verse 10. Now it is unclear whether uh, the second half of verse 10, Jesus promise that he will reward their faithfulness by keeping them from sharing in a period of suffering, whether he's saying, look, I will, there's gonna be some suffering that's coming on the world, but because you've been faithful already, I'm gonna keep it from coming to you and actually you won't get persecuted. He might be saying that or he might just be saying, the persecution that's coming on everybody, I will make sure that none of you fall away. I will preserve you through it. We don't know which of the two it is. Either way, what Jesus says at the beginning and promises at the end is what will keep them going. First, in the introduction, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. (coughs) holy and true and holds the key of David. Now in 118, Jesus was described as holding keys there, but there it was the keys of death and Hades. Great encouragement. It's not the persecuting authorities who hold your life in their hands. It's Jesus. Jesus alone has the keys of death and Hades, not them. But this key is a little bit different, the key of David. It it alludes back to um, the prophet Isaiah and in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 to 25, The key of David is a key that represents the right to entry into the people of God. So his point is, look, you can be excluded from the synagogue or you can be shut out from a synagogue building, you can be shut out from a church building, but if you trust in Jesus Christ, no matter what earthly organizations and buildings they shut you out of, he has the key to entry into God's people and he will bring you in. Wonderful encouragement. As well as the key, there's a door, you'd expect that really. Um, And here in the second half of verse seven, we learn about the door. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, see I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. All kinds of doors are being slammed in their faces because they follow Jesus. The door of the synagogue has been slammed in their faces. The door of career opportunity. Yes, you have a lovely, oh, I see you attend church. Door closed. The doors of friendship. I don't want to know you if you're going to keep with that fundamentalist filth. Door shut. Doors of social acceptability. You will not be inviting him, please. I really don't want him coming. You're only coming if you don't bring him with his weird Christian ideas. The door to the inner circle, the in crowd, all these doors shutting. And for some, the doors of prison cells have shut behind them. But a different door is being opened by Jesus and no one can shut that door. The door to God's eternal paradise kingdom. The one with the keys to eternal life was opening the door to his eternal kingdom and saying, you will come in and no one will throw you out. Now, when you come to the end, if the beginning of the letter is all about access and the right to come into God's people, the end is all about permanence. Verse 11, I'm coming soon, Jesus says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown, the one who is victorious. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Hold on to your faith and you'll be given a crown no one can take. That's the promise of Jesus. Uh, Christians in the plains of Nineveh, a few years ago, lost all their possessions. As they fled Islamic State, at the checkpoints, I mean, it was take off your engagement ring, your wedding jewelry, your family heirlooms. Thank you very much. That's what it costs you to leave with your life. As they left, their neighbors took their homes, their children's toys, their cars. Everything that mattered to them was taken. But no one can take the crown of life from a follower of Jesus. Jesus. That's the wonderful promise of the gospel. What is genuinely most precious is what is most secure. If you trust in Jesus, what is genuinely and eternally most precious is most secure. No one can take that from you. The next is the, uh, is the image of the pillar, as I said. It's a picture of permanence, a pillar in the temple of God. Now, the point of a pillar is you kind of need them. They're, pillars in the temple they weren't just put up for show this is like you are structurally integral to the temple no one can just take you out you're not an annex you are a central permanent necessary part of God's people no one's moving you wonderful promise you can be thrown out the synagogue thrown out your company thrown out your university for following Jesus you can't be thrown out of God's temple you're a pillar Lastly, the tattoo, verse 12. Look at the second half of verse 12. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Three times, I will write a name on you, Jesus says. The name of God, the city of God, and a new name. And again, I think this speaks of permanence and belonging. A couple of days back, I went to visit uh, friends who are a month into adoptions. They've just got two little um, children who have endured more suffering in their few years on earth than anybody ought to in a lifetime. But now, now they've joined this new family and their names are changed. I don't think they've tattooed the surnames on them. I think they get in trouble for that. But the legally, <laughs> legally their names have changed. They have a new name a new identity, a new family. And that's a permanent change that no one can undo. And this is what God is promising. It's true for the believers at Philippi and it's true for you and me. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you get a new name. Permanently written, the name of God. You're adopted into his family, you take his surname. You're his now, part of his people. God's surname is tattooed on you if you're a Christian. Those who are slain will reign, we learn from Smyrna. Those who hold on will never be let go, we learn from Philadelphia. So how should we respond to this? A couple of things. Um, I've quoted a few instances from the uh, bizarrely named The Insanity of God book. Uh, don't let that stop you buying it and reading it for yourself, just because you've heard. They're not the only good bits that I've quoted. But the, the second half recounts, as I've said, the, the author traveling around the world, visiting areas where the church is persecuted and oppressed to try and understand how can the church survive and grow when it's, when it's brutally treated. He's from a Western country where it just it's easy to be a Christian, and he struggled when he went out to places where where, where treatment of Christians was brutal and at one point he, uh, he finds himself at a training week for house church leaders in rural China. Now all of these people have, have suffered for their faith. Every single one of them has been to prison for at least three years, every one of them. and They say uh, prison in China is for us like seminary is for training church leaders in your country. <laughs> Fantastic. Well I mean not but you know what I mean. I mean it's just amazing and uh, and as he's talking to them, he shares about two Muslim countries that he's been to where there is no established church because as soon as someone becomes a Christian, they basically get killed and, and just dragged away from their family. It's impossible for any church to grow And the next morning, he's woken by a commotion. He's been basically, you know, he was driven like lying on the floor of a a van. He's taken using code words around cities. He's kept hidden because uh, it could be dangerous for the Chinese Christians to have a Western Christian visiting them. And it means they'd be identified as, as Christians and in trouble with the authorities. But the next morning, he's awakened by a commotion. And his first thought is, oh, no, the secret police have raided us. And he sort of stumbles out into the courtyard and sees all these church leaders, a couple of hundred of them, scattered all around the courtyard. But there are no police. Instead, uh, some of them are lying face down on the floor. Some of them are kneeling. And some of them are standing with their hands raised up to heaven. Lots of them are screaming. Some of them are tearing at their hair, ripping at their clothes. And he can't understand any Chinese. So he has no idea what's going on. He asks the interpreter. And the interpreter says, just listen. And as he listens to these screams and shouts of these these pastors, he starts to recognise two words again and again and he realises it's the names of the two countries he told them about. Now these guys, these pastors have all been to prison themselves. They're all leading churches where any of their church members could be thrown in prison at the drop of a hat. They're constantly in danger from the secret police. They've got more than enough trouble of their own to occupy their prayers. But when they hear of a country where the oppression is so brutal that the church doesn't really exist. They are just in such anguish that they're up before dawn and they're down on their knees and they're crying out to God. Now, I don't know what your, church, your prayer life is like, but if you are a follower of Jesus here this evening, can I urge you to pray for the persecuted church? Churches like the church at Smyrna and Philadelphia and in China and in the Muslim world. These are our brothers and sisters and they need our prayers. They are our family and we're going to share home with them for all eternity and when you meet them don't you want to be someone who's prayed for them? Strengthen your love for people by strengthening your prayer for them. We don't surely want to be people whose prayer lives are just dominated by what is so often the selfish, shallow concerns of me and my world and my comfort. Now if like many of us, you just feel like, I'd love to pray for the persecuted church. I have no idea how to pray or what, you know, how do I know what I can trust the information, all this. Uh, there are some great organizations. Open Doors is fantastic. Started by Brother Andrew and they have, they tend to be sober and they check the evidence and they give really good prayer points for the persecuted church around the world. You can subscribe to their feed on PrayerMate if you use that app. But these are our brothers and sisters and they are suffering and we should be praying. That's the first thing to say. Pray for the persecuted church. I've put Open Doors website there for you. Well, we've been learning what does a church Jesus approves of look like? What will a believer's life be like? What will your life, my life be like if we're living rightly and faithfully? So easy to think, isn't it? If God's pleased with me, then my life should go well. Then I should get this job and that relationship and and this raise. The shock we get in the letters to the seven churches is the only two churches Jesus has no criticism for are those that look weak and pathetic in the world, those suffering and being oppressed. But worldly weakness, especially suffering rejection and persecution, are not signs of a church or an individual that is failing or faithless. Rather, that tends to be a sign of a church that the Lord Jesus loves, that is faithfully following the one who is crucified. I guess if you're here in church, you want to please God. If that's the case, if we're serious about that, then we need to be ready to give up physical and material comforts and worldly security if that's what it costs to be faithful to Jesus. I mean, God only knows the hardships that he might bring you through in life. But God assures that the hardships he brings us through are a refiner's fire for the gold of our faith. Our part is to seek to be faithful. And our part is to seek the maturity that means we'll stand up under pressure. Pursue your relationship with God now so it is strong. Don't let financial comfort or physical safety determine all your decisions. Pursue service and sacrifice so that if suffering and persecution do come, that you will endure them and grow through them. We'll only be ready... We'll only be ready if we know what Jesus taught the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia—that He is strong enough to carry us through even death, and that He will reward us with a reward no one can take. There's a there's another great little account of with um, this same group of Chinese pastors as he talks about how do people how do How do you get people to stand firm under persecution? And he was told, well, uh, there's always this this debate that goes on, and this is how it often goes. The security police will harass a believer who owns a property where a house church meets. The police will say, you've got to stop these meetings. If you don't stop these meetings, we'll confiscate your house and we'll throw you out into the street. Then the owner will probably respond, do you want my house, my farm? Well, if you do, you need to talk to Jesus, because I gave it all to him, to be honest the security police will not know what to make of that. So they'll say, we don't have any way to get to your Jesus, but we can get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. The house church believers will declare, well, then we'll be free to trust God for shelter as well as for daily bread. Well, if you keep this up, we'll beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Well, then we'll be free to trust Jesus for healing, they respond. Well, then we'll put you in prison, the police will threaten. By now, the response is probably predictable. Well, then we'll be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives in prison to set them free. We'll be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, you may well be killed. And without a consistency, the house church believers will respond. Then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. And you cannot take that from us. What is most precious is totally secure. Set your hope on Jesus and his victor's crown and nothing can be taken from you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the example of these two faithful churches. We thank you that around the world today, many meet not knowing whether the police will break up the meeting not knowing whether they'll be harassed or beaten for attending, not knowing whether they might lose their lives because they hold eternal hope in Jesus Christ. We thank you, though, that the Lord of eternity, the Lamb who was slain, has begun to reign, and he holds the church in his hands. Father, thank you that the victor's crown cannot be taken by any earthly power. And we pray that you would help us to set our hope and our hearts on heaven, on the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of his crown of glory so that we might be set free from the fear of losing what we have, the fear that stops us from being faithful. Help us, we pray, to stand firm and help us to stand with our brothers and sisters around the world for your glory and their blessing. Amen.